So, Rhino, here we are. We're uh, in Gus's house. We're about to head off after a lovely evening. What was the sort of abiding memory of Gus's house then, beside the tales of Everest and wild surf? <laughs> well, am I talk a lot, allowed to talk about the wonky bog? It's a wonky bog. He's trying to he's trying to keep it like uh, like one of those base camps or something. He's trying it to is. keep the Mongolian experience perhaps, going, isn't it? Perhaps that it is. We just need to leave live life on the edge, yeah. and that's but, what Gus is all about. That, that I guess. Is, you know, we came round and we, you know, lovely, lovely. Hospitality on behalf of Gus. I brought the fish and chips in. Rhino, Rhino brought the beers round, and uh, you know we've sat Gus down, had this amazing story, uh, and then a couple of breaks along the way. And every single time, it's like, "Don't touch the bog, boys! It's, it's not fastened to the floor." <laughs> but uh, that, I think that sums Gus up, doesn't it? You know, for for as serious as the stuff that he does, you know, the wonky bog. I, I really think it is. I think he's uh, he's just that. That is the wonky bog. Yeah. So, guys, to. Hear the rest of it besides the monkey bog. Stay tuned. <laughs> Angus Ruddle coming up. Surfing, no matter what they tell you, is about lifestyle. It's what we all strive to get right. And today's guest is the gold standard. He works hard and he plays in ways many of us could only dream of. Charging in Indo, jetting to far-flung corners, sailing or even Everest. Gus has no shortage of life experiences, but he's earned it all right, doing one of the most high-stakes jobs there is. Welcome to Crest, Gus. Thank you. Now, because of how special a person you are, Gus, uh, we've gone deep into the archives and we found the perfect co-host. It is our most popular former guest of all time, Rhino Thomas, back on the show, this time on the other side of the mic table. Now, Rhino, I understand, uh, was your neighbour growing up, is yeah. it true? Yeah, he was. And fact, actually, if it wasn't for Rhino, like I was grovelling round in the surf like one day... I think you were about 12, like just like surfing away, and I just thought, mm, right, I really need to try and improve here. <laughs> and now I look up to you, Gus. Yeah. You're my inspiration. Yeah. yeah. Not surfing. <laughs> now, well, there's Rhino's intro. That's, that's about the third intro he's had on this show now. <laughs> the, the crest treatment wouldn't be complete uh, without. A little bit of an intro for you as well, Gus. The lion's share of which, uh, as is only fair for his presenting debut, is going to Rhino to deliver. Well, thanks for that, Tom, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, I think just going back to um, mid-lockdown, actually, in May there, uh, I've just finished the podcast with you and Rob, Tom, and you said at the end of the podcast, could I suggest anybody who would be a likely candidate uh, for future shows on the Crest podcast? I didn't really have to think for too long, but Gus, Angus Reddle, came to mind. And in fact, Gus and his brother, Ben, were my neighbours in my street. And both of them were the sorts of people who are just totally committed in the way that they live their lives. Both of them fantastic surfers, and that's thanks to how much thought they put into doing things so really, really well. But in the case of Gus... It's not just surfing where he's absolutely at the cutting edge, Tom. Uh, literally, actually. <laughs> or is that, a, is that a horribly inappropriate pun? No. <laughs> yes. Dear listeners, you've actually like surfing. 
Look at that. Coming up with a better pun than the writers. Yes, listeners, you've heard an allusion to doing a tough job in our intro. Well, Gus is a consultant vascular surgeon. We'll learn a bit more about quite what that means down the line, no doubt. Uh, we've all had a huge reminder in 2020 of what we owe our heroes in the medical profession. And what I can say in crude and simple terms is that people place their lives in his hands. He might smile and laugh as much as anyone you'll meet in the surfing world, but behind that grin, that wetsuit, those scrubs, I'm milking this, aren't I? <laughs> is, uh, is clearly someone who has a very serious side indeed. Yes, and it is that serious side which actually gets you into many of Gus's best, side, uh, best tales. The hours he works are long and gruelling, but this is a man who knows how to reward himself. Well, I say reward, but even there's an element of the masochist to how Gus spends his free time between shifts. I can attest to his credentials as a surfer. And a boat trip to Indonesia, Gus, for example? <laughs> Tom, Gus will go over the ledge on almost anything. And, and when Rhino says that, he means it. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll be hearing about a few sessions from that trip later, hopefully. But beyond surfing, some of the things Gus has, has achieved are simply out of this world. Uh, and those are actually the perfect words for it. Uh, surfer, surgeon, sailor, horse rider and mountaineer. <laughs> And it's the latter that merits the out-of-this-world tag more than anything, because the summit of Mount Everest is, in fact, situated in a part of this planet in which human life is impossible. <laughs> Surely a surgeon is going to know better than anyone what's happening to the body in those upper reaches of the Earth's atmosphere, I guess. But does that put him off, though? Not one bit. Tom, I, hope, I hardly know where to begin here. Uh, I reckon the steelworks. Might sound a bit odd, but you did hear me right. <laughs> yes, here in South Wales we have these iconic landmarks, and none more so than the towers and the fairy lights of Port Alba. And it was there where Gus got one of his first tastes of the world of work. Gus, when you started in the steelworks, did you really see yourself as one day being where you are now and what you're doing now? Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> I like your positivity. <laughs> Working in the steelworks was like fantastic, though. I think like uh, I think if I hadn't worked there, I'd have just like just turned to just some sort of yappy twat. <laughs> 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 and, and like uh, uh, I kind of guess like at the start, because of uh, like through school I worked hard, and I assumed like you. You know, if you didn't work hard at school, like you didn't get like your qualifications, then in actual fact you ended up doing like a a labouring job in the steelworks, which is what I did. But when I worked there, like I just found one like fantastically funny, intelligent, motivating people they were mm. who just absolutely just took the piss out of me like nonstop and like you know brought me down to earth. And I think actually if I hadn't worked there. I'd probably been a bit of a knob. Where? Well, more of a knob than I am now. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a bit of a sense nowadays that, that people just try to get into some of these jobs. I'm not referring to the steelworks now, I'm referring yeah. to your, your current uh, source of employ. That people try and just get into these jobs just because they think the job looks kind of cool. Like it's almost a sort of a materialistic idea of sort of yeah. wanting the reward but without thinking about what's actually... Well, they actually think like the job is going to make them something. Yes, yeah. rather than the yeah. idea of becoming the thing they need to be to do the job, isn't it? Yeah. What were your 
motivations to go down the path that you did? Uh, to be honest, I had no idea what I wanted. I was like quite bright at school, like not the best, but uh, yeah, I was like fairly bright, and uh, and I could like work hard, and uh, I never even really wanted to go to university, and uh, it, I thought I nearly got thrown out of school. Like you know, so I did quite well in my O levels, and then A levels, so I kind of just thought, well, what's this all about? And like. Uh, and then didn't put any work in whatsoever, for, and then nearly got chucked out. And uh, then, have you ever seen that film Chariots of Fire? Yes. Eric Liddell, is that Yeah, like, brilliant. So I went to go and watch that with my parents, like, somewhere, and, uh, which is all about, like, people, I think, in Cambridge. And, uh, and then I suddenly just thought, like, I really want to go to university, and I realised I'd blown it, because I had done no work for, like, nearly a year and a half, Nearly been thrown out of school and been to like uh, very many lectures and uh, all that kind of stuff. But then I decided, right, no, I did want to go to university. And if I was going to university, I might as well go for a long time and do a long course, which was medicine. And, uh, <laughs> and to be honest, it was like as arbitrary as that. Uh, but then I, uh, I had to catch up for like a year and a half. So like, I realised I didn't really have enough time to do that, so like I had to start getting up really early in the morning and studying for a couple of hours before school, obviously go to school, study a load of hours after, and then I'd have to do all the questions from like the chapters of the books that I'd missed for like a year and a half, and I used to write them down on, I don't know if you ever remember the old computer paper, <laughs> I used to write them down on the back of that. And then I used to like go to the school the next day, and I just went to the local state school, Porthcawl Comp, which is like superb. And uh, and then my teachers there, like Ted Cart, Mrs. Hillary, uh, Mr. Rowett, Mr. Tingey, in their lunch hour, used to mark like uh, all all the stuff my, myself produced, like up. homework. Mm. Yeah. So in actual fact, even though I'd like dosed around for a year and a half and like taking the piss really, like, you know, they could see actually that like I was going for it and in their lunchtime they used to go through all of the questions and stuff for me. And then uh, when I applied to university, like I got five refusals all in one go, which is absolutely unheard of because my expected grades were like so bad. And then obviously like when I did my A levels, I, I did really well in them and then uh, and which was thanks to those teachers. And then, uh, like, one of the local MPs uh, got me an interview in Cardiff Medical School, even though I hadn't, like, applied there. But by that time, I just thought, right, no, I can choose what university I'm going to go to. So I, I took a year off, worked in the steelworks, and then went to the university of my choosing then. So, uh, yeah. Well, well, it's interesting what you said there about the, the teachers in Porthcold Comp, because I can remember... Um, sitting in a classroom, I don't know whether you um, remember, there was a teacher called Mrs Davis who did biology. Oh, yeah. And she was yeah. recalling a story of a student from 10 years previous who had left school. And kind of what the story that you just relate just then, but she told us of how that you used to revise and how obviously it was kind of very last minute. And she described, and I've got this picture in my mind of your bedroom just got with... with diagrams of hearts and veins <laughs> all over the wall and all over the ceiling and she said that you just basically buried your uh, yourself in your room for like four weeks pretty much before the exams yeah. but with with that said like obviously becoming a doctor isn't like a, a straightforward affair How well, did you, i'll stop you there though mrs davis who was originally mrs powell uh there's payback in life isn't there so like she she was a fantastic school teacher yeah 
and actually she like helped me enormously through those exams right. uh, and sadly she's passed away now but I yeah. looked after her in the last couple of weeks oh really and it's just like it was wow. like, yeah you know so it's like it was nice to be able to like give something back because mm. she was cool yeah she uh, was a fantastic teacher she really was but um so but with this addiction to surfing or affliction with surfing does it make it harder harder or like easier to take on like the challenges of becoming a doctor stroke surgeon uh, throughout the training was there really a did it help you in any way or was there a... uh to be honest i came to surfing quite late so right. um uh, probably towards the end of like medical school, and I'd say they, you know, so I'd surfed or just bimbled about all the way through when I was like younger, and uh, but then when I actually finally qualified, uh, and so that's probably the time that I'd have like the most disposable income, and uh, and then there's like Gary, I think Scofe was there, uh, Die Pig. Like we all went to Fuerteventura for an absolute wreckage surf trip. And it should have been the time in my life. I mean, I just qualified. Like, I had the most money. I was all nice and respectable. <laughs> and I just went. For like, and we just had, like, the, uh, like a pretty wild surf trip there. And that was the start of my surfing, really. So, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. It was Southampton you went to. Yeah, it was, yeah. Went. So what else, did you, what else do you then have to do to get to... You know, that, that job in the end, casualty, I'm assuming. Yeah, well, so you do, like, get your A-levels, go to medical school for five years, then you do house jobs, which is a bit different to house jobs now, and I know, like, all the junior doctors will just be like, oh, you're always saying it wasn't like it in my day, but, I mean, it really was. Go to work on a Friday morning, and then, like, you'd walk work day and night, like, Friday, Saturday, Sunday till Monday afternoon and everyone's just like oh you can't possibly have done that but we did and uh, and then Monday it'd be like your night off and we'd be on what's called a one in two so it's like either sleep or go out and uh, so we used to go out and then we used to go to work like Tuesday and you'd work all Tuesday all the Tuesday nights and then Wednesday night would be your night off and like by then you'd probably need to like sleep but I mean it was uh it was brutal, but you saw like lots of patients, got loads of experience, and actually, like it simplified life to like just basically eat, sleep, work, have fun. Yeah, and uh, you know, yeah, that um, seeing lots of patients and lots of different things is really important. Then, yeah, behind that, you've got to have that base before you specialise, right? Yeah, and uh, and I think now, well, with like European working time directives, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, like you don't have those like brutal hours and seeing that number of patients and and that's a big loss for the profession right yeah so to where you are now then right i promised the listener that we'd we'd learn this um what exactly does vascular surgeon mean uh vascular surgery is like bypasses on arteries and um uh, so if you imagine like a central heating system like you've got the boiler which would be like the heart so the cardiac surgeons like deal with that and then we deal with all the pipes that come out of it that go to the brain, uh, the main aorta, which comes out of uh, your heart, the arteries to the legs. And uh, yeah, it's good, but it's uh, it's pretty demanding because once you start an operation, there's no way back. Like it's uh, once you like open an artery, or uh, then you have to see it through. And um, and actually, 
I think that's the thing that's like special to vascular surgery is, uh, and you know, there's uh, the people that are attracted to vascular surgery, like it's that kind of black and whiteness to it, and uh, you know, pretty much there is no bailout position. So like once you start, you're in for the ride, and sort of uh, yeah, there's no there's no vascular operation then that can be like a bit of a success. It's either uh, yeah, pretty much either they go well or like, you know, if there's a problem, then, you know, basically you've cut off the blood supply to whatever you're operating on it, be it like the brain or anywhere else. And uh, yeah, the results are pretty catastrophic if, if that happens. Right. So, uh, yeah. So, but I mean, you kind of have to like plan to avoid those situations and that's the art of it. Yeah. Perfect dress. Yes, size. It's pretty stressful just listening to it. <laughs> yeah, it <is>. you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, just going, bring it back around to the surfing side of things. Like, with that sort of level of pressure in your job, like, was is the role of surfing in your life? Is there, is there a, like, is that a good release for you? Obviously, it's good for your mental health um, exercises as well. But uh, how do you do, do you uh, use surf to? Uh, no, to as be a honest. Release? Like, I absolutely love my job because I love that aspect of it. Right. And in actual fact, I think that kind of, like, carries through into my surfing. And because uh, I think, like, where I surf best, and I don't surf well at all, uh, but where I surf best is, you know, when when it gets, like, really, like, extreme and then, mm. uh, well, what I consider extreme, and then you really, like, focus. And that actually, the more black and white it gets, the more I enjoy it. And actually, the better I perform, mm. and uh, and yeah, but I mean, the, the the real thing that like surfing has brought for me has been like friends and people that like bring you down to earth and stop you getting like too much up yourself and sort of you know. And actually, it doesn't matter what you do or how you do it. Like it's uh, you know that that's what I loved about it. It's just like that natural acceptance or rejection, and you get that from the from proper surfing community. Yeah, and uh, yeah. And it's that community, surfing community, uh, has that sort of helped you to make the decision to live by the sea? Obviously, you could have lived inland doing the job that you're doing and still, but I guess you could have still surfed a lot during the time off, but... I think, to be honest, I couldn't have lived inland. Really? And, uh, no. I mean, like, like, well, like all of us, like, we've always had the sea, and uh, whether we swam in it, surfed in it, sailed in it, and, you know, and in actual fact, I'm just about to open a can, that's the noise. I was, I was going <laughs> to rate that for the benefit of the listener, but you've already done that. Well, if I take a slip as well. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, no, I, like, for me, it's, like, really important to just be able to, like, walk to the beach. It's, like, really special to, like, be able to go down there, whether it's rainy, like, windy, and actually bump into people that you know you've known for a long time i can remember one day when like i uh, remember when there was all those massive storms and mm. it was like huge waves in 2014 i think that yeah, was. yeah so like like i walked down the beach at like about five six no six seven o'clock in the morning and like the the surf was like huge but like there you were and uh <laughs> like we were just like right <laughs> fancy it and like you know that's great that's just like a doorstep adventure isn't it it was, it was brilliant. just like yeah, that yeah. was fantastic just think like sure. I know how Rhino knows that date it's because it was the, it was the year of the bank at Pipe yeah. it was the year your daughter was born <laughs> <laughs> because Rhino lost the best session of the whole year oh. is that a good story to tell? because his daughter had been born 
<laughs> I did actually miss the 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 day of the year of de- the the year the day of days of all the years they were that day. But hey, you know, it's at least he can remember it was 2014. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> but you say, guess that um, you know, you obviously live your life in and around the sea, and you couldn't live away from it. But uh, one of the other things that um, obviously you're doing uh, quite a lot of recently is sailing. Like, how, how did that come about? Uh, so, like, as a family, like, we sailed since, oh, since I can remember. And, like, the great thing with sailing, uh, you know, so, like, when you, so generally, we used to sail dinghies. So there's two of you in a dinghy. There's, like, one person who's, like, basically helming the thing, calling the shots. Mm. And, uh, and then the other person's at the front sort of dealing with some of the sails and things. And we used to race. But I mean, the good thing about it is, like, even the kids, like, you're racing against adults and, like, you're making decisions, calling the shots, and actually, you know, you're racing in, like, heavy winds and sort of, uh, and so it, like, teaches, you know, and you've got to get down there, like, rig the boat, it's freezing cold, put it in the water, all the sails are flapping and it's, like, stressful. And, and then you, like, sail, and uh, which is also, like, quite, like, stressful, but in a good way. And then you come back and you have to put the boat away. And uh, But, like, you're doing that and you're competing with the adults, even as a kid. And, mm-hmm. like, it, it, like, taught me that it was great because of the... Uh, it's a bit like surfing. Like, you've got, like, grommets and you've got, like, older people, like Chris Chip and, uh, you know. And, actually, everyone's the same. Right. And, and sailing was the same as that and it, it just... You know, you learn to communicate on that kind of, like, level. And it was all about, like, ability and go for it. And no matter how old you were or what you were, it was just like, you know, it was like a level playing field. And, and that's what I liked about sailing. And, like, now, sailing is just like a, like a doorstep adventure. Mm. Like, you just get on the boat. Like, the sea is, like, infinite. And there's nothing to stop you going, like, as far as you want to go. Fantastic. And, like, uh, you know, so, like, sometimes... Uh, like I'll finish work on like a Friday evening like I'll rush out of work get down to the harbour at 9 o'clock it's just like getting dark and like uh, and it's partly back to the junior doctor thing is uh, you know time is precious and you just got to think right well it's getting dark I can either not go sailing or I'll just sail in the dark so like you know so then like you just set out uh, and then I'll just sail to like Lundy Island or Ilfracombe, you know, over the course of the night. Mm. And uh, again, like no sleep, just like when you were a junior doctor. And then like sleep in the bottom of the boat, pull the sails over the top of yourself. Like in the morning, there's phosphorescence in the water and wow. seals like going round. And then sail back. And uh, you know, you've just been to another world, like totally, like you know. We go off on all our like surfing trips, and like all of us have been to like you know everywhere that's kind of like exotic. But in actual fact, it's kind of like an exotic and a kind of danger, like right there, you know, immediately available. And uh, yeah, I was going to say that the 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 sort of trips that we do as surfers, and perhaps the trips that you do as a sailor are like night and day I guess we have yeah. all the sort of comforts and the we can fall back on just going back to the hotel or to the tent but where like if you're on a sailboat and something goes wrong you've got to sort it out there and then you've got nobody else to rely on I guess if yeah. you're doing it solo but I mean it, it, it is lovely though because it, it, it is just like adventure and and it's not just adventure and I love sailing by myself and sort of uh, yeah it's just like a 
you know, there's a freedom that comes with it, and sort of, uh, it's a bit like when you get on the aeroplane, when you've been working really hard, and you're going off on a surf trip, and your first gin and tonic arrives, <laughs> and you just think, ha, right, no one can get hold of me now. <laughs> <laughs> what's, your current, what's the boat called, by the way? Uh, impromptu. Ah. Now, there's a story behind that as well. Uh, so me and my brother Ben, mm. uh, so we decided, I, I don't know why we decided, we like we hadn't sailed for years, and then we just thought, right, it'd be great to have like a little sailing dinghy. So we bought this sailing dinghy, it's like 15, 16 foot long, like no cabin on it, and we bought it on a Friday, uh, and then we brought it down in pool, we brought it back to Wales, and then like on the Sunday, we took it down to Cornwall, and then uh, we sat sail and we thought, right, we're going to the Scilly Isles. So we sailed it to the Scilly Isles, which was like just amazing. And then we spent a week, and so the boat is called Impromptu because we, we didn't name it that, but it just happened to be like we bought it. And then we just thought, right, let's get on with it and we sail it. And when we got back from the Scilly Isles, because everyone in Penzance Yacht Club like knew we'd left, and they were just like, ooh, right, I don't think that's a good idea. That's a tricky one. Yeah, and when we got back to the Yacht Club, we got back, you know, like a week later, having, like, we sat off at, like, two o'clock in the morning into, like, a real, like, strong easterly wind, but I had to get back to work. And, like, we spent all day battling our way back, and we got back uh, at about 10 o'clock at night. We went into the Yacht Club, and then we had, like, a standing ovation when we were in there. <laughs> and, like, you know, we didn't pay for any beer. No. And I tell you who was behind the bar was uh, Colin... I think his name is Brightman. The bloke who, like, surfed, the, had the record. Oh, Colin Wilson. Wilson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No way. Yeah, yeah. He was just like, uh, like, you boys like surf. And like, yeah, we do. And like, you know. He's a great and, guy. And, uh, yeah, so he, like, knew Herbie and everyone from around there. That, that was the guy that used to run the BSA. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he surfed, like, the Sad and Ball, and they made, like, a programme about him. And, That's uh, right. Yeah, so he was behind the bar at the Yacht Club. No way. Yeah. Can it get kind of a bit lonely as well the sailing I mean maybe even lonely in a good way because I remember you telling me that Lundy tale before and it sounded like it was yeah sort of um, I, I think Emily Williams in one of our shows a little while ago called it like type 2 fun or something like that you know like, like kind of great but not not for everyone uh yeah, it's kind of, well, I wouldn't say it's like fun, but like it's, I think, like for some people, it's just necessary to do that kind of stuff to to keep yourself happy. And, uh, and, and you know, it's kind of, uh, yeah. So, you know, I love all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And in actual fact, although like you're out there by yourself, actually, you're, you know, sometimes like you're least lonely in that situation. You know, you can be lonely in a crowd, can't you? And That's true. sort of. Uh, so you're team working with yourself, aren't you? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, to be honest, I just, you know, I just like, you know, it's nice when, like, literally, you throw caution to the wind and you just think, like, right, what happens, happens. And sort of. Uh, and it's a bit like. With the, with the climbing side of things, uh, you know, you um, you get yourself into into some sort of situation with climbing. I mean, climbing is frightening, and uh, or can be, and uh, but you get yourself into a situation where you just think, right, I have to move now. You know, there is no choice. Like you just think, right, I have to move because I can't stay where I am. I can't go back. So like the only way is up. Yeah. Or like down, <laughs> very quickly down. So actually, so like, and in actual fact, there's a clarity that comes with it. And actually, you just think like, right, that needs to happen. If it doesn't, 
I'm gonna fall off and die and say so, and and you know there's no like bravado about it you just uh, just think right I need to do that and it needs to happen now and uh, and there's a kind of simplicity that comes with that and it's the same with like you know sailing out to sea or or whatever and uh, and the natural fact there's a peace that comes with it as well because you pass stressing by that stage like you just like just think right well you know and and have you gone into a pickle at sea uh not so much at sea, um, because, uh, you know, like, because we all live here, like, I've always considered myself, a, you know, a good swimmer, and I just think, you know, uh, <laughs> and as well, like, uh, like, you know, we have grown up on the sea with, like, waves and stuff, and, like, you know, it probably will go bad one day, but if it does, like, you just think, like, well, okay. You know, I've had a mass of fun in the meantime, and uh, yeah, so it's gonna happen in the end anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As Mike Mackoff says, none of us are gonna get out of this alive. <laughs> <laughs> it's written on the wall. You, uh, you, you mentioned there uh, as well other landlocked activities that mm. have taken some of your your time, and uh, yeah, you you have gone on some trips that to the sort of regular surfers who are off on our normal sort surf trips <laughs> might con- consider quite unusual. I remember at one point you saying. That you were going to go away to Argentina, oh, and yeah. I remember going, oh, you know, "What spots are there then?" And you said, "No, no, you were going there horse riding, horse yeah, riding. yeah." So it's fab, yeah. Um, where else have you horse ridden? Uh, everywhere, really. Uh, I've ridden Mongolia, uh, South Africa, like on like horseback safari where you're just like blasting along in the herds of like zebra. You know, it's like being the shoal of fish, like, you know... And you're like, in it. Yeah, you're in it, and, like, they're rubbing up against your leg, and they're, like, the herd, like, changes direction, and you change direction with it. Uh, I've ridden across Central Asia, so Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, into Afghanistan. Afghanistan? Yeah. Uh, so coming from Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, that's the west side of Afghanistan, then, is it? Uh, to the east. So you, Kyrgyzstan is towards the east. Oh, there's my job. And then you, yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, and then you come come west through Tajikistan, which is just amazing, and then into the Wakhan corridor, which is in uh, Afghanistan, and uh, yeah, I mean that was like a six week trip, and uh, it's it's it was an organised. Well, it started off as an organised trip, but then uh, people were just like using their sat phones and calling in helicopters and four wheel drives to take them away. And the, like the more disorganised and the more out there it got, like the better it was as far as I was concerned. <laughs> As you all over again. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I think we ended up with about four of us actually rode our horses to Afghanistan, like everyone else was. Well, like, yeah, fantastic. And we just left horses, like, you know, all over the place. But, yeah, that was an amazing trip. But, uh, yeah. And then I've ridden across the... Ant- oh, like, ridden everywhere, really. You said you've ridden across the Ant... Andes, yeah. The Andes, right. Yeah. So that was like north of Santiago. And uh, again, you know, that was an organised trip. Like, I just paid my money and, like, just turned up. up I mean, beautiful. Like, uh, like we lost a horse on the first day because of their, um, the, the tracks that we were going along, like, were so narrow then, and, like, precipitous. And, like, this horse just, like, kind of bumped its backside on a rock. And, like, the next thing, just, like, pfft. He was gone. And, wow. uh, well, yeah. Think... But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Horse riding is, like, brilliant. It's a bit like surfing, because they kind of, like, 
you know, you interact with people, like you just get there, like if you turn up on a horse and sort of, you know, and uh, like it's an immediate like in, like and uh, like sailing, it's it's how the original adventurers of this world yeah. would have done it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or horse, like when you think about it, there are horses ever in the world, like you turn up. Like you can cover any ground on a horse, it's like exhilarating, like horses just like give you like a nice like feeling, they're like mellow, like and you know, it's kinda of like kinda of like companionship. And then you just rock up in like some in the middle of like you get hundreds of miles from any road or whatever and you just turn up and there's all these nomadic farmers and sort of, you know, and uh just you just kind of go and say hello, and uh, you know, in whatever language and it you is, try. It is hello that you say, or is it? You know, yeah, well, uh, like in Central Asia, because the Russians were there, so like it's, it's good to know like a little bit of Russian. I know like a couple of words. But you turn up like in these girls, these big round tents that are like in the middle of nowhere, and there's always these dogs out, and like nasty dogs. Or that uh, they've had their ears and tails cut off, so the wolves can't get hold of them. Oh, wow. And then, uh, so like you turn up, and then they, they bark like mad until like whoever's in the tent comes out. And then when they like the dogs like see that they're like your friend, they go quiet. And then you go into the tent, and uh, they they milk the horses. Everything comes from like horse milk, so they make like kumis, which is like fermented mare's milk, uh, which is like slightly alcoholic. And like in his tent, so you're hundreds of miles from anywhere. Like you go into the tent, they give you a big silver bowl which is full of like this kumis, this fermented mare's milk, and it gets passed around to everyone. Like you have to sing a song, so I was like singing the Welsh national anthem, <laughs> and uh, you sit, you sing the song, and then you have a drink, and uh, you know, and then you just like sit drinking vodka with them, and like in you, and that's it, you're in. <laughs> But if you don't go up and introduce yourself, and like if you just like turn up on your inner horse and like set up a, a tent near them without like saying hello, like they'll probably nick everything that you've got. Oh, but like you know, if you go in there, like That's you're your their guest, and like yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, so those are those are good times. You yeah. you talk about travel, and there's a lovely wistful smile that comes <laughs> over your face when you do it. You 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 you've got that mm. wanderlust gene, haven't you? I just love like big open space and I love meeting people and uh, yeah and uh, yeah, I love geography and I love like isolation and actually you know so much of the world now is so like attainable like you know we, we could like sit here today and just say like go on Tom <laughs> come on Rhino let's go to Antarctica and we'll be there tomorrow if we had the money mm. and, which we have and uh, you know and say so, like it's just nice when there's still like culture and geography that's kind of like semi untainted tainted mm. can I ask you like a quick question then yeah. with regard to travel because you talk about all these different ways and you know the yeah. excuses to travel right? yeah um, yeah because if you had good waves on your doorstep if you had a big mountain behind you behind your house if you had good terrain you'd still travel yeah you? yeah you would definitely it's just good to see what's out there, and in actual fact, that also makes you appreciate what you've got here, and because um, we've got it all here, and uh, you know, it's nice to go and see see everything else, but uh, you know, you, you come to like realise that you know, you've got everything that you need here, and actually, COVID has like taught everyone that as well, isn't mm, it? It's absolutely. kind of you know, like admittedly, we've had nice weather. But uh, you know, like you just think, right? 
it, it, it's been quite nice in a way not to like stress about going abroad like I mean I have a lot of time off like four or five months of the year and uh, you know and it's a major you know I just think right you know what am I going to do like what am I going to do with that time and sort of uh, you know and there's a big stress associated with that and because of like the whole like COVID thing you can't go anywhere so you just think right I'm going to enjoy what's around us and uh, which and we've got everything here and like friends experiences geography the whole lot isn't it you know absolutely yeah so it's kind of uh and in actual fact like all these countries that you go to like so you go to mongolia because you think oh that's right out there and sort of uh you know but like where do they come when they want to go somewhere that's right out they come here you know <laughs> so, yeah and actually i was sat in a tent in mongolia so like like literally like hundreds of miles from anywhere like i'd ridden there on a horse and i've sat in a tent and it's like one of these big round gear tents and they had like a motorbike and they were like nomadic pastors. Uh, uh, and you think they're, they're poor, but in actual fact they're not. And, uh, and then I was talking to the guy and he was just like, he was just like, yeah, my son is studying in, uh, in England. He's at the London School of Economics. I'm like, no, you know, no, that's I, fantastic. Yeah, I'm like, you know, I'm sat in a tent, you know, and like, you know, like you just think, oh, these are poor peasant farmers and whatever. They're there because they want to be there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and in actual fact, like this guy was like loaded and, uh, you know, like his family had always like uh, had cashmere goats and all this kind of stuff, you know. But yeah, he knew all about, like, you think you're out in the middle of nowhere, he knew all about London, like, his, you know, he's paying for his son's fees there and like, yeah. yeah. Cool, that's fantastic. Mm. Because I, I think I've been lucky enough to go on a, um, quite a few trips with you and I think some of those trips I class as probably some of the best trips that I've been on uh, in my life. Well, I'd also say, though, there, though, it's like I, I consider myself really fortunate to have been able to go on, like, surf trips with, you know, the likes of yourself and, like, other people. And, you know, that's been the nice thing about, like, Porthcall is, like, you know, like, to be able to go, like, surfing with everyone yeah. and, like, you know, and... And as well to like surf in the way we all do, yeah. and uh, which is like everyone goes for it within their own like abilities, yeah. and like everyone's there to have a laugh. And in actual fact, like wherever we turn up, like you know, the our crew is like respected, absolutely, and, and that's that's due to like attitude. And it's been lovely to be like have to be accepted into that, and you know, to have that, which has been like super precious yes and uh you know it's uh you know all the i mean like you can have all the, like these like statement things like you know being a surgeon or like you know and you know everyone's got them in their different like things in life but um but in actual fact that's more important to me than any of that and sort of you know and you know, when everyone's like hooting you into waves <laughs> <laughs> into oblivion. Come on, come on, guys. <laughs> and they want it to go off. <laughs> and it does. But I mean, you know, that, but that's fantastic, though, isn't it? Like, yeah, you know, no, it just, really is. Yeah, it is. Like, like, you know, you just think, like, right, that's good. So, does that mean then that the you, the trips that you've been with your closest pals yeah. on these surf trips stand up as like the best trip? It doesn't necessarily mean that to have the best surf or the best location. Is it all about the company? Yeah, it's about the company and about the attitude. Like, you know, a load of people who are determined to have a good time and, like, make this work for you. And, like, you know, you can turn up. Like, we've all been on surf trips where the waves have, like, been, like, lame. But, like, 
you're still going to have a good trip. Absolutely. And, and you know, and in actual fact, everyone there is going to like contribute and and uh, you know, yeah. So that that that's good. Yeah. Rhino was telling me that on a trip to the Mentawis, um Lance's. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Got very big. <laughs> and, and that you played an important role in ensuring that the boat stayed put. <laughs> this is, this is, I mean, this is the, one of the things, Gus, where um, I learned something about you that day, which I, I don't know whether I should have known, or, but, but I certainly found out that day. I remember pulling up at HT's, and. Oh, yeah. It was. There was a crew of, what, ten of us on this boat, yeah. and we pull up to HT's, and it's kind of closing out. It's pretty big, and everybody's umming and ahhing. And we've been there for, like, a good 20 minutes, and certain members of the party are saying, right, we need to go north, we've got to go and find some shelter. <laughs> and, you know, there's some of us are like, oh, should we give it a go? And then next thing, I sort of look out the corner of my eye, and I, I, I can't actually repeat what you said, but I can just hear a splosh. <laughs> and then just seeing you stroking out leisurely, just going, get on with it. And... <laughs> And, and once one man's off, the boat can't. And yeah, so, once, yeah. so, so Gus is gone, so we're anchored. That's it. <laughs> and then everybody else follows. But I think that was for me. That was I learned something about that. You is it reckless abandon? No, no. Well, I, in, <laughs> Calculated risk. No, well, like the thing that I absolutely like hate, like uh, like indecision. And like when you think like we were sat on like I mean that was a pretty like talented crew of surfers on that boat. That's very it? true. And, very and true. I must say I wasn't one of them. <laughs> and uh, but like you just think like we've come this way and like it did look like quite intimidating, wouldn't it? Which is why everyone was sat on the boat really, yeah, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. And like, but I just thought like nope. <laughs> we've come to have a go at this and like you know and I go out there and take my punishment which I did <laughs> but then <laughs> but then later then that afternoon we sailed round the other side of the island oh yeah and we ended up pulling up at Lance's left now at this time it's quite chunky that was wasn't it well this is yeah. the thing which I didn't realise is Lance's left uh, like hits the main um, part of the swell whereas HD is a bit more of a wraparound yeah so by the time we pulled up round there, like we, we knew it was pretty big, but but what I noticed about you like paddling out that you would obviously surf big waves in the past because <laughs> both you not not just yourself you and Ben in that session I mean I, I try not to put a, a size on the waves I mean it was hard to say but it was quite chunky wasn't it it was yeah. it was big <laughs> it was really big um, but you guys just seemed so comfortable like yeah. it was just uh, incredible to see that happen and like obviously it comes from trips from Hawaii in the past and yeah. bigger, bigger waves <laughs> I, I actually I, I made sure for that surf trip that I was fit so I yeah. done like loads of paddling and when we paddled out the HTs the four, first four waves that I took off on like I just went straight over the falls and got dragged the whole length inside like underwater and then I just pop up and I just think like oh god <laughs> like paddle back out again like take off on the next one just get hammered again that happened like four times in a row but I was fit for that trip yeah, yeah. and uh so so like unless, and then I just thought right okay like I kind of like got this you know I knew where to sit and like I uh, probably had some, uh, I wouldn't say the best ways of my life, but some, you know, but that was a good session, wasn't it? It certainly was, it certainly was. Okay, guess so, May the 17th, 2010, 10.30am, age 46, you summited Everest, I guess was the pinnacle of your mountaineering career, 
But um, to date, to date, <laughs> but oh, taking it right back to the roots, like what on earth possessed you to get into mountaineering? Obviously, coming from Porthcawler, I don't see any mountains yeah. around locally to us here. What, what, what's the story there? Um, well, again, I suppose it like just comes down to freedom. So, uh, like my dad had like a big book of a uh, big box of books. There's like a tea chest, and it's full of like. Uh, books like the gorilla hunters and sort of uh, they were all like these 1930s adventure stories there was a load of like mountain and my dad was like the mountain rescue team and uh, so he had loads of mountaineering books and it was about the time like Chris Bonington was uh, they were trying like the southwest face of Everest so there was a load of books came so like um, I read a lot when I was a kid mm. and so uh, and actually I think that inspired a lot of things but then uh like we always used to climb on the rocks in Porthcourt. Yeah. Like we didn't have any ropes, and sort of like lunchtime we'd go and climb. So like now these are all like you know these are like recognised climbs. Oh really? And we'd be there like in our Clark's commandos <laughs> like, at lunchtime, like no ropes, no nothing, like climbing up all the cliffs in Box Bay, and uh, you know uh, me and my friend Pete Maxwell, and then we used to even like age 14 like we get on the bus and we go to the Lake District and like you know we go camping there for a week but we go to there's a thing called Pavey Arc which is like a big cliff that everyone used to like climb up and we didn't have any ropes so we used to climb up next door to them without any ropes <laughs> and sort of uh, you know so that's kind of how it started and uh, you know so I was like read about mountaineering about climbing and like I, I kind of always like thought you know, when you when I was a kid, I just thought, wouldn't it like just be amazing, like uh, if I could climb Everest and like you know, and I had a real burning desire to do it. Wow. And then two friends of mine from Porthcawl, uh, Dave Halley and Bigsy Ron Clark, they they uh, um, two amazing characters. Like they like uh, went to Everest Base Camp. They basically like hitchhiked up through India, went to Nepal. And uh, and they'd seen Everest, and I just thought, oh my god, that's like amazing. And then I just thought it'd be great to actually see Everest. Well, so then I did. Like um, before I went to university, I uh, went to Everest myself. Uh, like you know, I just got on a bus and uh, went from uh, Kathmandu in Nepal to a place. Uh, kind of Lobuchet or somewhere. Anyway, trekked in. Like it took me a month by myself. And I, actually, the last bit of the trek, I was with a load of Tibetan refugees, and like, and I went to base camp. There was no one there apart from like uh, there was a British Army expedition there, right. and then like I didn't have like the right equipment. I was freezing to death. I used to have to sleep between two like Canadian guys who had like big warm sleeping bags just to try and like not freeze to death in the middle of the night. And that's not a, like that's, that's a real thing, freezing oh, to death. Oh yeah, I mean it was it was cold, and uh, and then like I tracked back, and I thought, well, you know, that's great. It was like fab to like see Everest, but I thought I'll never get the chance to climb it. And then I heard about some guy who like paid to go on an expedition because really you had to be like an ace climber to mm. like you know go to Everest. And then I heard uh, someone like paid to go on an expedition. He was a really good climber, and I just thought like number one, I'm not wealthy, and number two, I'm not a really good climber. And then, uh, and then years on from that, like uh, after a big like contract wrangling work, I found myself with a lot of free time and a lot of money. Hmm. And uh, I went to the right. I'm gonna give it a go. So like I didn't tell anyone about it, and I just like kept it all quiet. I didn't want to worry my parents or anyone. And um, 
I kept it to like the last possible moment to like tell everyone that I was going. And actually, for Gardner was one of the first people I told. Mm. I said, "Oh, like you know, I'm going going to Nepal to like climb Everest." And I said, "I don't know whether I'll, I'll get there or not." And he was just like, "Yeah, you will." And, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, that, and that is like the positive of like of our crew, isn't it? Like, yes. It was, whereas like in other parts of the country, like having to just be like, "You'll never do that" or whatever. Mm. Like he was just like, "Go on in," and uh, you know. And, uh, yeah, and, you know, that was a, like a dream come true. But, but I mean, it wasn't like a, you know, that is probably like 30 years of daydreaming and probably like 10 years of a lot of planning, getting fit, getting the necessary experience, getting the money, like, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's a big undertaking. So there's the, the, the whole... Tr- like so to speak training mm. for Everest it, it, it isn't just like cramming for exams like four weeks no. before you've got does no. it essentially start from pretty much like, a, like when the dream has popped into your head that is your journey there's no training you're always yeah for me like I think it pretty start I mean and there's different stars of climbers a thing on like Everest like for me like I was always like an independent unit so like even like within our expedition, like you get people who would be like bitching about like the conditions or like you know, uh, you know the preparations and stuff, and I'd just be like thinking like, well, no, we're here and it's mm. up to us to like make it happen, and like you know, like we've paid for all this infrastructure, like sherpas, oxygen, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But like at the end of the day, it's up to you to get yourself up and get yourself down and deal with whatever comes in between and in actual fact like you know there are no there's no like guarantees there's no guarantees that you're going to come down or like you know but like you know if you're if, if you're not up for that then you shouldn't be here and uh, you know and and that's been a great thing about growing up in uh, Porth Court is like that independence and that kind of you know just like right you know it's uh, yeah so so it, start, it starts at Base camp, right? Yeah. And uh, all I know about base camp is from movies. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'll be honest, I don't think it's somewhere <laughs> I'm, I'm going to end up going in this life. Um, but uh, what is base? Is base camp actually quite a sort of mission to reach? In, yeah, it in, is. In its own. Yeah, I mean, I mean, say, like I've been there like three times now. Like, the first time when I was eighteen, and uh, but actually tracking to base camp. You know, that's, that's quite like an undertaking, and it's beautiful. I mean, but, you know, it... Uh, what altitude is base camp? 19,000 feet. 19,000 feet. I'm trying to turn that into metres. So, like, 5,000. Oh, right, higher. Higher than anything higher in the Higher than the Inca Trail, oh. then. Uh, yeah, 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 I'm yeah. Not, yeah. Dead Maybe. Moments Pass is 4,009, I think, yeah. Really? Yeah, well, it's some, somewhere around there. So that's the starting point. Yeah, and so, I mean, even just walking around in base camp, or even, like, getting in the toilet, because you have to, like, squat down to go to the toilet, <laughs> you know, that's the major physical activity. <laughs> just thinking, like, I feel a bit short of breath now. Like, you have that's, to walk around slowly and, like... That pass, I think, is 4,009, isn't it? Yeah, maybe, like yeah, yeah. City, you know, and, like... But, yeah, so, like, but base camp's high, and it's cold. So, uh, you know, you're sleeping on a glacier and at night it's kind of all popping and like groaning and there's like, you know, you can hear all the avalanches coming down around you and like, uh, yeah, base camp's like quite a place. And how long did you stay there? Three months. 
in base camp. Yeah, well, I mean, the whole expedition takes like three months, so uh, you know, it can't be the same height as La Paz, then, can it? You can uh, stay there for three months. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you can stay there for years if you wanted to. But <laughs> I guess uh, the shippers are there the whole time, most of no, the time. No, no, no. They just they just come up for the expedition and then they go and back to camp. Is yeah. it like a little village? Has it got a shop? Has it got like a no, 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 or no. Like that? no. But this, but it's just a glacier, so there's like crevasses and uh, you know, and like all the tents like are cut on platforms in the ice and. Uh, no, like base camp's like quite a serious place. There's like um ah, there's like a tiny little tented hospital there, but I mean holy goodness, uh, it's basically like a tent. And uh you, you, you kept your uh, field of expertise a clever secret at that point, and did you Yeah, well <laughs> uh, I mean to be honest, that's one of the things on like these expeditions, like as soon as they hear you're a doctor, like you're getting called to like this, that and the other all of the time. Yeah. And uh which is fine, like on the tracking, yeah, like and like you know, there's everyone's getting like altitude sickness and things. But actually, you know, like actually, when you're on the climb, like it's uh, whether you're a doctor or not, it's fairly like well, it was in my mind fairly irrelevant. What do you do to pass three months at base camp? Uh, so, it, it, you know, the whole t- like you get there, like you track in. Uh, so the whole process takes three months so you track in that probably takes like ten days two weeks because you need to like go in slowly to get yeah. to that altitude then pretty much you don't do anything for a week you just like sit there and acclimatise that altitude and, like maybe you'll do some crevasse rescues all that kind of stuff and then you have to like start trying to go up the mountain so you go up through the Kumbu ice fields which is like super dangerous and uh, you know you get up as high as you can in a day you get altitude sickness which is just like having well I only can like describe it it's like the worst possible hangover you've ever had like you feel sick thumping headache no energy you can't sleep you can't breathe properly uh, you know it's like it's, going to altitude is dreadful and then like so you go up you maybe like camp like for uh, uh, you know about a thousand or so meters up above base camp like you'll feel terrible the whole time then you'll come down and then you recover in base camp for a couple of days you've already lost masses of weight and uh, and then after you've recovered you'll go back up again and you go higher and this time you'll you'll get to your previous altitude you feel absolutely fine you'll go even higher and then and then you have to go through it all again and like so you spend three months like going up and down up and down until like your body adjusts and uh, until you get to like about 24 25,000 feet until you're acclimatized to that level and then you come all the way back down uh, which takes you a couple of days to get back down the mountain and then you sit in base camp and then you just basically try and recover because you're screwed at this stage uh, and then you just wait for a weather window and then go for the summit and uh, yeah so. and then you obviously got that weather window and I remember reading the vlog on Jagged mm. Globe um, one evening and uh, they wrote the, the fact that you, that you were going to go for the summit yeah. the very next and like, I can remember the hairs of my back my neck standing on end yeah. and obviously I was really uh, relieved to hear that you had summited but what you're up on the summit then, like, like what happens? I, I guess you're elated, or is it an anti-climax, or is there a no, celebration? It's not an anti-climax, uh, I'd say it's a massive, like for me, yeah. to get to the summit was a massive sense of relief, because of, uh, you know, this had been something that's probably like been burning in my brain for like maybe 20 years to get there, Yeah, and, and as far as I'm concerned, it was a one-way journey. 
I wanted to get to the summit, I couldn't care what it takes, I and I didn't care whether I didn't come down, like, uh, you know, I had like an absolute head on to like get there, and uh, and actually I knew that if I didn't get to the summit, you know, because of whatever, you know, weather, or that I just thought like, like that is going to really fuck my life up, because of, uh, like, I'd have had to gone back there next year, it would have meant, like, financial ruin, I'd have had to sell the house to get the money to go again. Yeah. I'd have had to probably resign my career, uh, you know, that would have been the beginning of like, uh, to have not got to the summit would have been, you know, that would have had major ramifications and like, and in actual fact, I think like the whole Everest thing probably did for my marriage and, uh, you know, and, uh, but, you know, it's, uh, and if I hadn't got to the summit, like I would have still uh, like just given everything to have gone back again, and uh, you know, yeah. So that, that, to have not got to the summit would have been really bad. So to get to the summit was a huge sense of relief. Yeah, and, um, you're free. Yeah, till it starts again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I get, um, there was one. There was two questions I thought were like, but the the one which really uh, I wanted to ask whether it was a myth. But um, when you returned down to base camp, this the, the story that there was someone uh, special to you that yeah. met you back there. Who was that? Yeah, uh, it's my mother. Uh, I, I'm not even sure where old my mother is. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's seventy six now, so she'd have been like younger then. But yeah. She'd uh, like um, she'd like tracked into Everest Base Camp. So like when I got back down from the summit. So this is the ten day trek up to four thousand. Well, no, she'd been like it taken a right. month to get there because she'd gone yeah. over all these other like passes. And, and so stuff she's she's at this nearly five thousand meters. Yeah, and uh, so like I get down from the summit, and in actual fact, the the journey down from Everest was like fantastic. So like we summited, and then we got down to the South Col, which is at eight thousand meters, which is like the start of the death zone. The the people that I've been to the summit, meaning mean the zone at which a human can't survive, you mean the death zone? Yeah, I mean like you basically everything starts to go wrong above that height. Right. And uh, but anyway, I got there, and uh, and then I I was feeling good, and um, so then. Uh, there was like another storm coming, so I thought, right, I'm going to get down the mountain. So I descended the mountain by myself, which is, you know, was beautiful because I like I had the whole mountain to myself. Like no one was going up, no one was going down. I was just down my by myself, like abseiling, like down, like just totally alone. Like stopping from time to time to look around because I was just thinking, like I'm never going to be here again, probably. Mm. And uh, and actually, I'm never going to have this to myself again. So like, I spent like two days going down by myself. And when I got down to like base camp, camp camping to sleep then or not? Uh, well, I went down to camp three. Like I spent the night there, and then uh, and then like carried on down from the bottom. I had like a massive fall coming off the um, lotsy face. Uh, like I slept and like I was luckily I was on fixed ropes and then but anyway I got down to like safely I got down to base camp from all of that and then uh, my mother had like tracked in there so she was like waiting for me <laughs> with a piece of fruitcake like cup of tea and you know that was like you know that was uh, oh, that's the icing yeah, on the it cake was, it was nice and like we spent some time together and obviously 
I was like super acclimatized. So I've been there for three months. So like, like we walked out for a day or two down the valley, you know, until I made sure she was like safe. And then I went back up to base camp then, you know, for the rest, to see the rest of the expedition then. Yeah, but that was cool. Amazing. Yeah. Absolutely an amazing story. Yeah. And can I ask some of the morbid mm. questions as well? Mm. There are reminders, aren't there, on the way up? Yeah. Of what can go wrong? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, in actual fact, there, yeah, I mean, this. There is a mortality associated with it, and you and know you see corpses, don't you? Well, actually, you see people uh, that actually <laughs> you were talking to like two days before, Ryan. So there's like a like when I went there, there's like a Russian guy who's just like dead on the ropes, and there's just like one rope to go up, and uh, you know, so you have to like climb all over him to like carry on, and yeah, yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's there's dead people all over the place up there. And um, and there's one famous one, isn't there? Oh, Green Boots, is that one? No, that's on the other side. Oh, right. So that's if you go up from the Chinese side. And, uh, yeah, so he's, like, frozen in there. But, I mean, there's, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, like, dead people all over the place up there. But to be honest, it's pretty hard to tell who's dead or who's not because of, uh, you know, even, like, on summit day, like, you've got just people just lying in the snow, like, not going anywhere, up, down. Like, you don't know whether they're dead or whether they're alive, whether they're on the way up or whether the way down is kind of like it's, uh, you know, particularly like on summit day, it's a kind of, you know, it's um, it's like a big step into the unknown. And to a certain degree, it's kind of every man for himself. And, um, so there's no stopping to help people. Is that like the not etiquette, but it's just kind of it's uh, an und- unwritten rule. Well, I think I think really, and uh, you know, everybody like you know, like everyone knows the risks. Everyone like accept or should like accept the risk. Like you just think like if you're going to go up there and you're going to go into those kind of places, then like if you get into trouble, then you you have to you are going to die, and actually you can't expect other people to like risks themselves to save you and mm. actually you know and I just think like you know you go up there it is a, like a bit of a lottery and uh, you know you just take your chance and like you know if if you could help someone then you know you you would I suppose mm. but uh, you know and I've heard of people like giving up the summit to like help people down and uh, you know and I just think you know that's not in the deal, is it? No, well, but that wasn't. You wouldn't want someone to do that to you. No, no. And and, and in actual fact, like, you know, I just, you know, it was like a, it was a one-way mission when, as far as I was concerned. And, uh, you know, and, you know, the other people there, you know, I would hope they also made that, that decision. And if they didn't, and then they get into trouble, and then they're like bitching about like people not helping them down or whatever. And, you know, I just think like, you know, once you once you leave like the South Col and the Death Zone, I just think like you just take what comes, and uh, you know, and if it's going to be your day, good, and if it's not, well, you're just going to have to like suck it up and like you know, that's that, isn't it? You know, and uh, I I'd like hate to think that like you know someone would actually put themselves at risk to, uh, and actually it's that's not part of the deal. Mm. Like you know, I you know I just go up there. And, like, I just think, like, you know, everyone just accepts that, like, you've abandoned yourself up there. And, uh, you know, so if it all goes bad, then, like, you, you just take the consequence. And, uh, and, and then, in and actual fact, 
that's a certain thing in like modern life like say like like going out surfing or going out sailing all of the things we do mm. there is like this element of like people are just like well you're putting other people at risk by doing what you're doing and like you know uh, and I kind of resent that because actually like there should be like a clause which is just like I'm going to do what I'm going to do yeah and, like, you know yeah because yeah, otherwise nobody would do anything yeah and I, and, I, and I don't want any of you to like you know be like coming out and I certainly don't want any of you trying to like limit what I'm going to do but you know and uh, so yeah after something like that how does it feel to return home and to be sitting in yeah, the, the quaint seaside town that you grew yeah. up in. Is, it, there, it, is there a bit of a come down? Is there even maybe a risk of like sort of sinking into a into feeling low? Uh, no, not really. I don't think. I mean, uh, it's like I mean that that was a burning desire for me, and uh, and then you just and like there could be like a void after that, but. Uh, yeah, I I'm very much like a day at a time. I just think, and even now, like I still like look back on it and just think, well, actually, you know, that was something I really wanted to do, which I have done, and actually, I risked everything and gave everything for it. And uh, but it, you know, that was yesterday, and like you know, and actually, it's just like today's another day, and like, you know, it's, uh, like, you know, like, let's have a good day today, isn't it, or like, you know, and, uh, you know, so I don't look back, and, uh, and, and, and actually, like, you're fortunate if you've got inspirations, or like, you know, something that, like, really grabs you, I don't beat myself up if there's not, like, another one coming, and, but, you know, there are, like, things where you just think, ah, oh, actually, I'd quite like to do that, or, you know, and uh, you just take it as it comes, isn't it? So what are those things, then, guess? What else have you got on the horizon? Like, obviously, to top Everest it was, is a difficult feat, but... Uh, uh, to be honest, I'd love to get, like, just one of those just, like, massive, like, stand-up, like, size of a room, like, barrels. Like, uh, I really would. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and I just think, like, and I, you know, I would risk and give anything for that. I just think, like, you know, and... Uh, yeah, I just love to have like one of the, you know you know one of those like I I don't, don't mean I want a magazine shot but like you know I would you know those pictures like yeah. you just see where someone just like stood there they just got like this gaping barrel all around them and you just they're just like charging along and I, and I just wouldn't want wouldn't want to be just in the mouth of it I want to be like right back <laughs> in the uh, law yeah you would I want to be right back and like you know and that's yeah I just think a, like, a, a one way journey again yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it might be for my level of ability but I mean it's uh, you know I'd love to say like you know, well Nazareth isn't too far away guess. Yeah. <laughs> that's not really a barrel though is it well but, I don't know, know. you can oh, ask yeah. Lynn Evans that I suppose yeah. he was on the podcast wasn't yeah. he he'll whip you into something yeah. Malik Moore maybe yeah, yeah. I'd want to paddle into it though oh really oh. yeah <laughs> You of course you were his cake and eat it, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, that'd be good. And actually, like, back to like the horse riding side of things, I can remember when I was a kid reading about like uh, the Silk Road, which basically goes from China like back to Italy. And actually, I've ridden a lot of it anyway, but I'd quite like to, I'd quite like to ride that. And, and I probably will actually. I mean, this, uh, you know, but I'd just like take my time, bimble along. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. Fantastic. So in the corner over there, I guess, there's in the 
wooden box there. There's some complicated apparatus, which I forget the name of actually. But it's called oh, a sextant. A yeah, sextant. Yeah, so that's yeah. what is that? This is part of some uh, unit to you to measure the stars, is it? So you've been well, into astronomy lately? Yeah, that's been like the whole COVID thing, isn't it? All oh, right. right. Okay. <laughs> so, so that's fact. I kind of, it started off with, I read this book by a guy called Tristan Gooley, which was all about the natural navigator. So like how to find like Polaris, the North Star, and how to navigate from that. So I thought, all oh, right, but I've got a bit of time on my hands because of the whole COVID thing. So I'll find out some more about this. So I've been learning about astronomy and then me and my dad have been teaching each other, like, well, mainly he's been teaching me, uh, <laughs> astro-navigation, which is like where you measure like the height of the stars at certain times and things. And then you can work out wherever you are on the planet. And that's what the sextant's for. Wow. So uh, it's been great because of, uh, like, so I've learned all about the stars in the last few, and I bought a pair of binoculars and I've seen, like, the moons that go around Jupiter and, like, Tom knows loads about all that kind of stuff. Did you see New Eyes the Comet? Yeah, which was yeah. fabulous through with the binoculars. And, like, now, like, you know, the meteor showers. I've Coming up in the next few nights, yeah. yeah. So can, you, can you do, can you keep binoculars... Still enough for Jupiter's moons. Yeah, well, actually, uh, so I've got, like, a big Velux window that, like, looks south, so I can just rest them on those, so, yeah. Oh, you rest them on Yeah, so they're they're fab, yeah. And and my uncle, who's, like, uh, he's he's got, like, a massive telescope, like, he's, like, 80-something or so now, so I hope that's going to come my way when he, like, passes on. (laughs) But, like, you know, he's been hugely into astronomy, and, like, he was, like, telling me about there was, like, some comet that, like, smashed into Jupiter. I think it was in about 97, and he was actually watching that through his telescope. When it happened. Yeah, so, like, he said, like, Jupiter was, like, spinning, and then you could see, like, these big black dots, like, wow. where, uh, and... Uh, That's a good telescope, then, if you Oh, yeah, it's, like, it's, I think it's, like, 400 mils. Yeah. Because oh, um, you, you, can, you can get the red spot on Jupiter yeah. with, with sort of household telescopes, but something like Yeah, that. I'll have to get one, or I'll, buy, I'll get Greggy's off him. <laughs> he's got one. Yeah, yeah. Tom's got a good one. Yeah, Tom's yeah. got a good one, yeah. Well, Greg, Greg was coming around and looking at mine quite a bit, and then oh, got man. his own one. And, uh, good old Reg. Yeah, good old Reg. <laughs> and uh, he, he rang me up and he said, right, I'm, I'm going after Jupiter out tonight with my telescope. Oh, right. And then, uh, and then he rang me up and he said, I can't find it. <laughs> Can you come round and help me find up. Jupiter? Yeah, because Jupiter's really hard to find, you know, isn't it? <laughs> It's all about having the telescope as steady as possible, and I'd said yeah. that to him. I'd said, "Great, get it at the right temperature and get it really, really steady." And then uh, when I got round there, he'd put it on his kitchen table <laughs> because he thought that that was going to put it a little bit closer to Jupiter. <laughs> I said, "Great, looking through the I like the logic. I like the logic. Yeah, four hundred and fifty million miles from your garden table." And it was rocking around everywhere. <laughs> so, uh, so then we did find Jupiter, and you know, then he was stoked. Yeah, with, oh, with yeah. the four moons going. The job was done. He is like super enthusiastic about it all, isn't he? <laughs> he, he loves, loves it. it. Yeah, 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 he does. does. The moon yeah. is one of the best things to yeah. look at, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You can look at the yeah, moon, you can see so. the craters and everything. Even through the binoculars, it's good, isn't it? My uncle was saying like he like looks at the sun because the sun is like uh, spinning. Oh, does he do that with a piece of paper, or does um, he actually has he got a filter? No, he's got some kind of filter. So as the sun is split spinning uh so it's like the doppler effect so it changes the frequency like the the light that's coming off it so like one side is like red because of like you're going into i don't know longer frequency and the other side is blue because it's going into higher frequency and like you know, yeah my uncle's kind of into all of that wow yeah it's good i must i must like sit in down 
and I have a good chat with him about it all whilst he's still here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Get some yeah. notes down. I'll lend you some of this recording equipment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. He's Well, actually, I was in a boat in South Africa. I was, like, going diving, and... Uh, there was uh, there was a guy like you know so we were all on the, uh, on the boat like and we had like an amazing day and uh, and the guy in the boat was like some American bloke from like Hawaii and I was just like what were you doing here and he's just like well I've come to see the there was some sort of solar eclipse and I just like ah my uncle goes all over the world so my uncle like even in like 1970 went to Iran. And, uh, and has been to Mongolia, like and like all these things, you know, before like travels invented in my <laughs> eyes, yeah. And like you know, and uh, and I said, oh yeah, my uncle, like he goes around and does all this kind of stuff, and he's just like, oh, you know, what's his name? And I said, it's like David Braham is from Wales. And he was just like, oh, gee man, I know him, and he was the professor <laughs> of astronomy from Honolulu. Wow. And, uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So he's uh, <laughs> just like, gee, send him my regards. Gosh. <laughs> From from the well, sublime squared <laughs> to the ridiculous, um, you've got an opportunity now on Crestrike, Gus, to set a couple of things straight. Now, I understand that <laughs> you have actually been present for two, both of Gary Lewis's submissions to Surf Trip Nightmares on Crest. <laughs> and, really? Uh, and, no, and, and no. <laughs> you, you, Gary wrote in actually with uh, with some comments that you'd had. Just wanted to set the record straight on a few of these. So very quickly, we we can start with the, this van that rolled backwards. Oh rolled yes. <laughs> yeah. What happened there? Ah, uh, so like we were at Anchor Point, and like Gary had already like got out of the water, and like me and George were getting out of the water, and at Anchor Point there's a car park, and there's probably like about a ten. 10 foot high wall which and then just drops off into the rocks and then there's me and George like walking up like their uh, steps there's like a van like starts like rolling towards us like it's like coming at like some kind of speed and uh, I was just like oh alright so anyway so I just like shimmied out the side like one side and George went the other side and this van just like shot by and then at the last minute it was the van was silent, like the engine wasn't running, and like at the last minute, then like a face appeared in in like the the front of the van. The van was going backwards, oh, which was like off, this young girl, yeah. And then we realised this van was just like out of control, no. so like the van just like shot off the top of the drop and like ended up upside down, like in the rocks. Oh. And, uh, and she was okay. Well, I shouldn't laugh. Yeah. That was, like, like, the, like to begin with, I was just like, ah, oh, god. Jesus, they literally just like run me down. Like Lewis is just sat on the bonnet of the car, just watching it all like go by, and uh, you know. <laughs> so anyway, the van goes off and like just lands like upside down. Like we thought, well, like, everyone's like killed in there, but like, but you had to get a medical kit out. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then, like, but in actual fact, everyone was all right. So oh, that's uh, amazing. Yeah. yeah. So and you can also. Uh, clarify for us you were present for the other in fact the winning surf trip nightmare story tall Paul Donovan's back injury on the day, the day minus two his the day trip to the Mentawis <laughs> a weekend in the Mentawis with Paul Donovan well that started before he even went was it as bad forward slash funny as, uh, as, as oh it was bad for him like, yeah it was bad like, you're, you're smiling <laughs> 
time zone who had to push him through the airports in a wheelchair plus all his four boards. So we were outside the jolly, like That's we right. were about to go like on a surf trip, and then uh, what's the name of that surfer from Cornwall? Nice guy, Spencer. Huntley. Spencer, yeah, oh, yeah. So, right. so, Sorry, so Spencer was like messing about, and like Spencer, I think, like pushed Paul or whatever. He then twisted and put his back out, so like Paul's in agony. So he was just like right. Just drink more, Paul, and uh, you'll be fine. And then he gets to the airport, and like he was in agony there. And then he gets on the bumpy boat ride out to the Mentaris. So like we're all like deeply unsympathetic, but his back is like a question mark at this point. Like he's in such like spasm. And then, then actually, it's evident that like he's got a real problem, isn't he? Like he's been lying on his back at the bottom of the boat for like two days, hasn't he? Oh, and then like you know, savage. yeah, then he has to go home. And uh, yeah, that was bad. Fairies, Lewis looked after him then he, he did he yeah. did we've uh, we've promised Paul that he's going to be able to come and uh, set the record straight himself on that and, uh, and I can see that we obviously clearly owe Greg Owen right to reply down the line astronomy special yeah. Greg the enthusiastic astronomer yeah 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 gosh well I remember the boys asking me about this having a, a surf trip nightmare and uh, I just thought no I didn't have one but then they ended up pointing out to me that perhaps I did have a few to speak of uh, that I hadn't really thought were a nightmare. But guess what? Do you reckon that you've actually had any surf travel nightmares of your own, so to speak, or is everyone an absolute dream? Uh, well, actually, I go on surf trips to have surf travel trip nightmares. <laughs> 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 because in actual fact, like, just the wilder and the badder those surf trips get. And then when I just go back to, like, the normality of, like, existence, it makes it more bearable. And, like, you just come home and you just think, like, thank God that's over. Like, after you've been, like, beaten to death in the cells, like, crashed in higher cars, like, got swept over in the reef somewhere, like, had all the nasty locals, like, give you a hard time, etc. <laughs> you just think, like, huh, I feel quite chilled now. <laughs> Brilliant. Life's not so bad. No. Next up, then, the right in West Oz, by the sound of things, I reckon, for you. Oh, see that place? Where's that, the box? No, there's another one that it's it, it, been towed into now. We'll give Glen Evans a ring now, as soon as we finish recording. That's where you want to have one of them big barrels, guys. Yeah. And we, me and Rhino, we'll see if we can get over there. We'll be in the I'll channel. watch you from the boat. Screaming you in, though. <laughs> Go, yes! <laughs> I, went, I remember like the first time me, like uh, Gary and Duggan, we went binging. This is probably like about 35 years ago. There was like 13 of us at binging. When, when binging is a village with chirping cockerels and not much else. But in, it wasn't in a village. Oh, and, really? Uh, yeah, one were rung and stuff. Yeah. And like binging is like the easiest barrel. And, uh, so like we turn up there. <laughs> I did everything I possibly I'd just be like, Gary. What's going wrong? Like, I've stalled, I've faded, I've done everything. <laughs> I still didn't get a barrel there. I got, like, some massive cut on my back. Because you, you know, like, the, the inside section there? I can't remember what it's called. Um, uh, in Bingen? Yeah. 
there's just locked like, jaws or something. Oh, I don't know, but it's really, sh- it's like almost like a it's shallow just, close just, out. It's a close out. It's yeah. A close yeah. Out. So basically, I remember everyone saying, like, whatever you do, then try and surf across that. <laughs> and then it was like low tide of being in, and like I'd taken off in the wave, and like, because I had like, like so much speed. And uh, which I wasn't like, you know, that doesn't normally happen to me. So I was just like flying, absolutely flying, flying, flying across. And like, you know, and then that last like section drained, and I just thought, right, I'm having it. And then <laughs> so, like, so I went flying across it with like more speed than I've ever had. And then I can remember just thinking, right, I'll try and do like a massive cutback. So, and then I cut back. And I'd run out of water. <laughs> I can remember just like flopping on my back from about six or seven foot up in the air onto that coral. <laughs> I've still got the scars now. Oh. <laughs> oh, brilliant. And the little massage lady spent the afternoon picking all the coral out of my back. <laughs> Which is a primary source of entertainment. I think, yeah. <laughs> Gus, can I thank you? But several times over. Uh, firstly, I, I want to thank you on behalf of Crest. I am sure our listeners have enjoyed the tales as much of us uh, as much as us. Secondly, can I thank you personally for the chance to chat over some of these stories, which uh, I knew existed, but I hadn't actually had the chance to hear in person. And and thirdly, um, it's twenty twenty. I've got to thank you on behalf of the country for the the work that you do while earning the time and means with which you carry out all these crazy escapades. Cheers. You deserve you deserve everything that happens to you, both good and bad. So, so the scars of being in and the uh, and and the the yet to take place inside out barrel. At yeah. some I will have one of those. You will have, and it will be documented. You, you might be the last thing I ever do. <laughs> <laughs> You've been an absolutely fabulous guest, Jochen Bauer. Merci. Thanks, Thank Gert. you. Honestly, <laughs> guest, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk in with you today, and uh, I actually feel quite honoured to have a chat with you. And Tom, thanks for inviting me onto the podcast. Um, I was obviously uh, honoured as well. Thanks very much. Yeah, all good. Thanks. Thank now, you. Now, believe it or not, but this was, in fact, the 20th episode of Crest. If you've enjoyed Gus's Tales today and aren't yet a subscriber, then can I point out that there are 19 other episodes and some other great guests with their own stories to tell. (laughs) And one of those back-issue A-listers is going to tell you where to find us. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Tom. The rest can be found through YouTube, Apple Podcasts or Spotify and we'd love to hear your feedback from listeners. Our email address is castcrest at gmail.com and we're also contactable through Instagram where you can follow us to get up-to-date information on future guests and episodes. Next week, Tom will be chatting to Chris Nelson and Demi Taylor, the people behind the approaching lines and London Surf Film Festivals. You may have watched some of these movies that they shared during the lockdown. Well, we'll be hearing about what's hot in terms of surf films this autumn and what show-ins or stream-ins they've got planned for the future. Watch out for it next Monday, as usual. And until then, can we say once more, thanks for listening, and see you again soon. Wow, wow. Yeah, not start. Not start. <laughs> Good night. Cheers, boy. Okay. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely brilliant.